It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our podcast experience. If you like what we're doing here and you haven't already, I would greatly appreciate you leaving a review or a star rating in the app that you are listening to this podcast. It definitely helps promote our podcast and connect with other people that might be interested in the type of discussions that we have here. And if you want to connect with me, your humble correspondent, you can do that by email. It's john at amblind.com. That's J-O-H-N at A-M-B-L-I-N-D.com. Our guest for this episode is Kristen Smedley. Kristen was introduced to the world of blindness with the birth of her first child. And man, oh man, did she pick up the blindness ball and run with it. She's been quite an advocate and dare I say wild woman when it comes to advocacy for her children and all other children with visual impairments. So we'll visit with her about that and a book that she wrote called Thriving Blind and a community she created and some lots of other stuff that she does. She Again, she's a wild woman. Kristen, thanks a bunch for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Okay, I ran across you, Kristen, somewhere on the internet. It might have been Twitter or Instagram or something, and I found out about the Thriving Blind book that I want to talk to you about a little bit later. I want to kind of start with your introduction to the world of visual impairment. When did that start for you? Yeah, you know, you know, John, it's interesting. I, I always chuckle now, and, and my kids laugh too, that that 21 years ago, I had never met a blind person in my entire life. Um, and the first blind person that I ever met was my oldest son, Michael, when he was born. Um, at four months old, I was told that he was blind. They had no idea why at that point. But I just and I, I, I laugh now because I, I feel like every day I think I talk to at least five or six, if not a dozen uh, friends of mine that, and colleagues that are, are blind or visually impaired. I mean, it's it's wild. Pretty big community out there, right? And and a, a phenomenal community, I will say. If you're gonna, you know, life's gonna hand you a curveball, and you're gonna land somewhere. The blind community is not so bad a place to land. It's good people. Yeah, I think I can relate to that as as, as well as your story, kind of there, because I was just going about life, just happy go lucky. I was a normal uh, teenage guy in college, and uh, everything was as you know, in air quotes, normal. And then uh, one day it wasn't. And it's just yeah. kind of, for me, happened um, overnight. I went to sleep one night, woke up about eight days later, and among some other things that were uh, challenging to me, the vision was was the most apparent and obvious. And so, I, I don't know, to just go from zero to blind is is one way to do it, you know? And I, I didn't have any, I didn't have any blind friends either. Uh, I didn't really know any people with visual impairment or, or blind so it is a, um, it was quite a world to explore, but I, you're right. It's a great community of people and there really are a lot of resources. And it seems like every day we go by, there are more and more, especially with uh, some of the things that you're doing and podcasts and other social media things that um, seem like they make the, the community grow. Yeah, which is fabulous now, you know, but of course you and I both went through the same situation years ago that there was no, <laughs> if anyone can imagine, there was no Facebook, there was no Google, there was no nothing. It was, I mean, I don't know about you, but I had a, I was directed at some point a couple years into this journey to a Yahoo, a Yahoo listserv. Mm, I mean, yeah. maybe some of your listeners don't even know what that is. Like it was that old. That was yeah. all we had was some kind of email thing. Yeah. And what we had, I would say at that time was just like, state agencies and very archaic and I don't, uh, slow yeah. or just very low tech, I guess would probably be the best way to say it, um, options for, for lots of things. And I, I probably would say that the first blind person I met was when I returned to college and met with the, um, it was called the uh, Texas commission for the blind and oh, they were, right. they were in the library and uh, I went to meet with them to figure out how I was going to 
go through college with a very limited vision, which was something that was totally new to me. And having a child with, with a visual impairment was obviously totally new to you too. So walk, kind of walk me through that process. Yeah. You know, um, I, I don't know about you, John, but, but maybe some of your listeners are like me that I, I've always been a planner. I, I mean, I, it seems bizarre to me now, but when I watch my kids growing up and how much their taste and interest change, but I knew from the time I was five that I was going to be a teacher. And I, I just, I just always knew and, and planned it. And I, I was just one of those people that, that made lists. I still make lists, check the box. And I love, I love the finish line. I love checking boxes. I love achieving goals. And I was very good at setting goals and achieving them. It was one of my biggest strengths going all through school, um, including college. So it wasn't a surprise to anybody about the fact that I was a high achiever and achieved all the things I wanted to achieve, including, you know, being a teacher and getting the the big house and starting a family and all that. I mean, I, I had every every one of my goals came true, but I will say, you know, as much as I was planning and making lists and checking boxes off and achieving goals, my biggest dream in the world that I knew I was number one put on this planet for was to be a mom. And and I think a lot of that stems from I had a phenomenal role model in in a mom and her mom. Like there was a lot of very good moms around me. So I just knew that that was something that I was, I was my number one um, purpose in this world. So, you know, when I finally found out I was, I was pregnant for the first time with my first baby, I thought this, this is like, you know, this is the big thing. This is what I was really destined to do. And all the other checklists didn't, didn't, I mean, they paled in comparison to getting ready to be a mom and, and for parents out there and and probably, you know, you, John and your wife probably went through what I went through of as, you know, in the very beginning when they say, you know, yes, they confirm that you're you're pregnant and they give you the the due date and you think, gosh, I just want this baby to be healthy, right? I just just come into the world with 10 fingers, 10 toes, healthy, and I'm gonna be grateful. Mm-hmm. And then if you're like me, then you start like after a few months, I'm like, oh man this little guy is going to have some serious sports talents, you know, and, and probably the, the valedictorian and like the next level of all the things I achieved, he's going to achieve. He'll yeah. be, you know, is he going to be Phillies or, or Eagles here in the, in Philly? That's our teams. And, and, you know, and the president and yeah, yeah just everything. right up to president, sure. you know, why stop? And, um, so as, I mean, I literally, as he's growing inside of me and my belly's getting bigger and bigger, my hopes and dreams for him were just, they were, they were off the charts, you know? And, and when he was born, I thought, I, I, I don't even know if I can describe how incredibly happy and, and knew that, that I was just living my purpose being Michael's mom. And then the day that at four months old, when the doctor said, your son is blind, I thought, you know, I said I had never met a blind person. And you mentioned, John, about, you know, all we had back then were these commissions for the blind and this very dark picture of a life of a blind person. It was, it was, um, you know, the perception and connotation was devastation. And that's what I was living in, in that moment. And I instantaneously thought, you know, all those dreams of me wondering if he was going to be catching the the Eagles touchdown pass or on the pitcher's mound for the Phillies were were so dark. They just they disappeared. And I actually said to the doctor, I mean, imagine this. My first question to him was, is he going to play baseball? And he said, no. <laughs> and I was like, uh, is he going to drive? And the doctor was looking at me like, I can't imagine what he was thinking. And he said, No. And I said, is he going to go to school? And he goes, I don't, he's not going to, probably not going to go to your regular school the way you're thinking. And I just thought, oh my God. So all of my hopes and dreams were gone. And I had had absolutely no idea of what to expect for him because I had no education or information and nobody handed me anything. They said to me, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, good luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's up to you to figure it out, Kristen, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that was um, in my particular situation. That's kind of the way. I, of course, I'm the the child here, and I, my parents are watching me. And I feel like that was um, not too far from the advice that they were given. Uh, it may may not have been exact, but it was it was 
it was kind of a free for all and just kind of figure things out. So, uh, things have really improved and will continue to improve for folks with all, all types of abilities and disabilities, but particularly in the, in the visual impaired community, things seem to be, um, seem to be improving, I believe, especially with technology, but we'll talk about technology too, because I I feel like that was probably a, a lot of changes over the last 20 years that you've, Mm -hmm. uh, you've encountered. But I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the condition that your your son was born with. Has it some sort of gene mutation? Is it CRB1? Is that the... Yeah. Yeah. It's a mutation in the, in the CRB1 gene that causes uh, Leber's congenital amaurosis, which you know most of your listeners have probably heard um, retinitis pigmentosa. LCA is the, you know, I call it the most severe. It's the earliest... I don't want to say onslaught, but it's the earliest development of retinitis pigmentosa. So my, I think at this point, I believe there's 23 known genes that cause LCA, and I'm probably behind on that science because it's changing so fast. You know, CRB1 is one of the bigger, is one of the bigger genes. And I will say, you know, I talk to people that are diagnosed with, their child's diagnosed with CRB1 now. I'm like, well, if you're going to get a Labor's gene, CRB1 is a good one to have because it's actually expressed in in the brain as well. And our kids are pretty much off the charts, smart and have perfect pitch. But with, with CRB1, you know, I call it a, a one-two punch to the retina because it takes out the rods and the cones. There's a lot of retinal diseases that'll just do one or the other, night blind, you know, whatever. But nah, we're, we're overachievers here at CRB1. <laughs> just take the whole thing, huh? We just take the whole thing out. So for the people that don't know much about the rods and the cones, what do the rods and the cones do in our eyes? Yeah, so that's your that's your your daytime vision, your detail vision, and then and then your colors and your nighttime vision. Um, so so for CRB one kids, we're uh, we the kids the patients are braille readers, white cane users. They're not seeing details of your face. Um, at least my boys. Now, now, just to add another layer of overachieving, overachieving onto this, half at this point, roughly half of the patients I know in the world and the studies that have been done, roughly half are later onset, more of the RP, and half, like my boys, are the early onset, the LCA. But but with CRB1, as in several other genes with LCA, it doesn't really matter um, where you start. All of them by 20s, 30s have severely reduced vision, if anything at all. And in the case of your boys, uh, you have two children that both have the same condition, right? Yeah, three years after that, that uh, sucker punched to my plans with Michael, Mitchell was diagnosed with, with the same disease. And it turns out, now I did know at, at the time Michael was diagnosed, they did tell us that with labors, um, LCA, you have a one in four chance with each pregnancy. Now, <laughs> I have to tell you that my memoir could definitely be called Delirious Optimist because I'm one of those people that heard one in four. And at first I said, oh, I have one child and, and you know, he's affected. So I could have three more and they're unaffected. Yeah, I didn't, I'm with you there. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. I was kind of like singing rap songs in that high school biology class where they talked and statistics where they mm-hmm. talked about things mm-hmm. instead of paying attention. But yeah, they said, no, 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 Kristen, it's, it's, you know, 25% chance with every pregnancy. So if you look at a lot of the LCA families, once the child is diagnosed, there are not subsequent kids because it's a, it's definitely a devastating blow to family plans. However, I being the delirious optimist said, oh, 25%, please. There's a 75% out yeah, there. I'm, we got this. No big deal. Yeah. So w- was that a consideration for you at all beyond that? I mean. Yeah, it was a huge consideration. And actually, if you look at my, my boys are 21 and 18. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a three and a half. Michael's three and a half years older than Mitchell because it took me quite a, a couple of years there to, you know, to kind of takes take it in with the diagnosis and where we were headed and then how was I going to raise an only child when I was I am from such a big family and have had kids around me I've been on teens my whole life and I actually thought you know it would be harder from it was harder for me to get my head around raising an only child and, and how how isolated his life would be 
than raising a blind child. Like I figured, I think I could figure that out more so than I could figure out only child. I don't know what kind of, what kind of things go through your mind when you're a young mom (laughs) trying to face something hard, (laughs) but that was the logic that I use. And I, I have never been so happy in my whole entire life that I had that bizarre as it may have been logic, because I will say that Mitch coming along three and a half years later and hearing that exact same sentence that your son is blind and they had no idea um, how to help, uh, it, it actually has been phenomenal in so many ways to have Michael and Mitchell be on a journey together, albeit them being completely and utterly different. They've always had each other um that they really do know what the other one is going through. And I try to say, oh, I get it. I don't ever fully get their life, um, but they really do have each other to bounce stuff off off of. And sometimes eh, they're brothers. Sometimes they're bouncing a football off the other one's head, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. And something you, you mentioned earlier too, about control and how you had the, the your life set up and everything was um, kind of planned out and you had all the spreadsheets and the lists and yeah. everything was going to happen. But you know, even without the the visual impairment or any kind of complications with with the children, I think just children kind of throw a lot of that stuff out the window anyway, don't they? I mean, you talk about oh, not having control yeah. and, and losing control. I, I really can't imagine what it would be like to have that little control over what, you know, what, what I think is going to happen and what actually happens oftentimes is very different, right, with children. And oh, so gosh, yeah. Anytime yeah. you throw in any kind of extra... Uh, fun or challenges. It's it's just going to make things a lot more interesting in life. You know, I will say this, Sean, after all these years, like I said, Michael's 21 and I'm about to turn 50. And I just realized, you know, I don't know if it was right before the world shut down or during it when I had a lot of time on my hands to give it everything some thought. I've realized looking at my Michael's life, you know, I started this journey having no idea what was in store for him and what he was going to be able to accomplish. And, and I do have a moment of, of surrender that, that your listeners can go check out my TED Talk and hear the full story of how heart-wrenching, bottom-of-the-pit moment that I had having to relinquish all of that control over my plans and literally surrender to a plan that was not mine and I had no say in. And when my hopes and dreams were gone for him and I finally said, okay, fine, you know, this kid is the happiest kid I've ever seen. Let me see where he wants to go. I don't know where that's going to be, but I'm going to get him everything that he needs to chase his own path. And when I tell you, John, that has been the number one blessing of my entire life that I wish every parent would remind themselves of every day that their kids are on their own journeys and we have to take our control and our our dreams and our plans for them off of them. I think that's where we run into a lot of problems with our kids. We are pushing them in one direction and it's all in love. I totally get that. You know, we want them to have that step better than we had. We see their gifts and talents. We see all those things and we want to push them in one direction and then they're pushing against and some a lot of times they don't even know why. But I think that if we can I think that was one of the greatest things that blindness brought to me was taking all of that off of of Michael and Mitchell. And I, I eventually had a sighted child also. Taking my plans and dreams off of them and the, the, the amount of soaring, the heights they can soar to without the weight of, of my plans. I mean, you see my story and where they've gone. It's been extraordinary. Yeah, it's not really about the parents. And it, it, yeah. at some point, it's not about the parents anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I talk with a lot of my friends raising sighted kids in high schools and as our kids are all headed to college and where they're having their biggest struggles with their kids and their kids, you know, start crumbling under the stress and the pressure. A lot of it is is rooted in whose whose path are we directing here? You know, our wishes for them or their own. Yeah. You mentioned your uh, your TED talk. I did watch that and we'll have a link to your website and the TED talk in the uh, description of the podcast and the show notes. You mentioned in your TED talk that you felt stuck. Is that kind of what you're talking about there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, a. it's interesting now how many, how many families I, I coach and support and the people I talk to and the crowds and audiences and stages I've been on when, when I started literally 
sitting on my couch crying every day. I mean, I would, I, I come from a very big, um, my, my life has been rooted in faith and Christianity. And, and I turn to every possible prayer, um, prayer group, church, everything I knew to pray. I was praying blindness away was what I was doing. And I spent all day and night praying blindness away. And every single morning I would go into Michael's room and there he was and blindness was still there. And I'd start a whole cycle of being mad, you know, upset, sad. It's like I was doing the cycles of grief every single day because my wishes weren't coming true. My prayers, you know, I thought weren't being answered. And then lo and behold, on that, on, on the day of my ugliest of ugly cries, when I was so pregnant with Mitchell and I just could not fathom having a second blind child because I knew that I was not, I wasn't getting it with my first one. I, I didn't know how to do it still. And I thought, how, how am I going to be impacted twice? Like, that's impossible. That's impossible. And I was not, uh, I was not my proudest Christian moment, but I was really at the bottom of the pit. And it was Michael that came bouncing into my room and said, uh, his famous line was, mommy, isn't this the best day ever? <laughs> I thought to myself, dude, you have no idea how it's not, <laughs> you know, yeah. you have no idea what you're missing. You have no idea what you're going to miss out on. You have no idea. You're gonna do it. And I, I finally just asked him, you know, why? Why would you think this is the best day ever? He said, well, you know, the sun is up and, and I have all my toys and I'm just so happy. And I thought, you know, you know, reflecting on that now, I think, isn't that what we want for our kids? We want them to be so optimistic and have faith in this world, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. We want them to have everything that they want and we want them to be happy. And he specifically stated that to me that all of those boxes were checked at three and a half years old. So stop worrying about it, mom. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, wow. You know, so I, I say all the time that I was, I wanted a cure for blindness in my life. And I did get that back then. It was my blindness that was cured. I no longer saw his journey as the devastation and, and utter sadness where I started. I realized he was happy. He, he was literally, John, the happiest kid I had ever met in my life. And I know tens of thousands of kids at that point. And he was the happiest one I had ever seen. And I thought, what kind of mom? Like I waited my whole life to be a mom. What kind of mom holds her kid back like that for three years, not getting him all the tools and resources he needs to live the life he's supposed to have? So you know, I'm not, I'm not at all proud of that. However, I, I tell the story often because I believe at any moment, no matter how old your kids are or where you're at in your journey, you can change it around in an instant like that. You can surrender and take a new look. I looked at blindness with a whole new perception of it and realized it's, it was more about access to resources that he needed. And I was blocking it. I had to get out of the way. In terms of the clinical definition of their vision, um, do you know what that is or what, what, they're, what they see? You know, most of it is gone now, but back when in the initial years of the diagnosis and doing a lot of, you know, annual appointments and stuff, there was a uh, Dr. Eric Pierce, who's now up at, at Mass INER doing extraordinary work in LCA and lots of inherited retinal diseases. But he had told me once that it was like for Michael, if you picture a bullseye, like there's, and it would be like a ring of vision, a ring of no vision, and in all those circles. And then you lay Swiss cheese over that. So you have vision, no vision rings, and then the holes in the Swiss cheese, you could see a little bit and then throw a fog machine over the top of it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was Michael's. Now, Mitch is completely different. They have the same disease and, and present completely different. Mitchell actually doesn't have any cells in his central vision, that's a complete blackness. But he does, interestingly enough, in his peripheral, have the, these little slivers. Like if you imagine a clock at about, at about four o'clock and seven, eight o'clock, he's got these little crescent shapes of, of some vision where he can, and it's got some pretty decent acuity. If, you pulls, if he pulls something up to his eye, he has some decent acuity with that. And is that expected to remain that way or will that go away with time? 
Um, we're, we are doing, which is a lot of the work I do now is a lot of research on CRB1 to answer questions like that right now. Um, we don't know. I can tell you that they had a lot more vision when they were younger. I mean, a lot more. We're talking, you know, yeah. they had 10% of what we have and now it's less than that. So of what a sighted person has um, and now it's less than that. But it is degenerative. It should, it, it will likely go to nothing by their 20s or 30s. But I, I can't say that for certain, but that's what I'm in a study. We're working on a study right now for that. So you've been working with with this for, sounds like around 20 years or so, um, which is a pretty good amount of time to raise some children. So what was kind of the key as a mom for you to try to keep the boys as independent as they could? You know, I I um, read Eric Weimer's book, Touch the Top of the World, back when uh, Michael was a toddler. And he had just summited Everest as the first blind man to do that. Of course, he's gone on to do all seven summits and all kinds of yeah, crazy stuff. He's pretty but, and he's become yeah. He's become a good friend of mine. He actually wrote the foreword for the book, too. But I read in his book about how his mom handled things when she knew he was going blind. Like he had to, she taught him, you know, she would go to the grocery store and come home and he had to help her put the groceries away so he knew where they were he had to like she had the kitchen set up that he could access plates cups like just reading about that those are the kinds of things that i started doing right away it was just actually talking to a mom in our in my thriving blind group that has a four-year-old and i said i i my kids joke we just moved we were in our house about seven almost 17 years and we still had this bottom drawer in the kitchen with heavy, heavy duty plastic plates and cups. And my kids, and they're all like little kitty things from picnic sets, right? That I always had my kids had access to be able to serve themselves and know where things were. And then we joke, you know, here they're like, Michael will come home from college, you go in the little drawer and get a, a plate and cup still. Mm -hmm. But those kinds of things, like anything possible and everything uh, within reason to have them independent at each of their stages. And honestly, to be a little bit ahead of the game, um, in terms of independence, because I saw that as I was started to meet um, people that were succeeding without sight as adults, I was trying, I was finding all the commonalities, which is a lot of what my book is about. The things like independence, confidence, academic skills, meaning Braille, literacy, those kinds of things were the things I honed in on. Because as a former educator, as a mom that wants to see her kids succeed, I picked those those recurring themes and the people that I saw succeeding and wanted to have my boys have them too. We talked about technology briefly earlier. How has technology made their independence and maybe the ability for you to help them gain that independence? How, how has that changed over the last 20 years? Pretty dramatically? Oh my gosh. You know, I talk, I talk with, with friends about like, you know, Kirk Adams, who's the, the CEO of the AFB is a good friend of mine. And I can't tell you how many times I say to him, how did your parents do this 50 years, you know, 40, 50 years ago? Because the technology we have now, just the simple, a simple thing like an access to a textbook, you know, the boys have the, the, um, well, Mitchell has the Polaris and Michael still, Michael still has the old Apex they don't even make anymore, but the electronic Brailers that are just a small device that they could, they got those in third grade. They can read a textbook on there. They can send emails. They can keep up with all schoolwork. They can either email their schoolwork to their sighted teachers or print it out on a regular printer. I mean, the access that that one device has given to my boys is absolutely extraordinary. It meant that we didn't need an aide in the classroom anymore transcribing Braille. We didn't need the, oh, we had closets, walk-in closets in my old house filled with math textbooks. And before that, it was all the other subject areas. They still don't have the math ones accessible on the electronic Brailler, but all the other subject areas. My boys haven't had to carry textbooks in years. Any book that they want to read, for the most part, they can get on a, on a uh, they download it to those electronic brailers and read it. I mean, the access to all of those tools and to education has been extraordinary. And then the, the other one that changed their lives socially, that I can't believe that I am the biggest praiser of the iPhone these days because I couldn't stand it when it first came out that I had to keep upgrading and all that. 
but that with the with the built-in uh, screen readers with voiceover, those features have enabled my guys to be on social media, text with their friends, have apps like Ira and Be My Eyes where they can call in to somebody that um, can visually guide them through the phone and a Bluetooth earpiece. I mean, all the things that I would sit and worry about as a mom before I, these tools came about or before I knew about them, it was like, check, check, check all the fears going away yeah. because these things are handling that to continue their independence. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way about the iPhone. I've mentioned that numerous times on the podcast. You're probably People are probably tired of me talking about it, but <laughs> really the iPhone, when I, I got on the iPhone in 2009, and that's when VoiceOver was loaded on the uh, 3GS model, and it, it really was a game changer. It was a life changer because, as you mentioned, texting I mean, phone calls are phone calls. Um, you know, you used to have to memorize people's numbers back, you know, long, yeah. a long time ago. You just knew people's numbers, you know. Mm -hmm. And really when, when the cell phones started becoming more popular, you have, I would have little scratch pads and, and large printed things with numbers and I memorized a lot of things. But when you when you move over to the iPhone with voiceover and all the stuff it can do, even 12 years ago, um, it, it really was phenomenal with, with how that impacted so many people. And it, it's also for other people with other, with different abilities, but particularly for me and, and, and for what you're talking about here, it's the visually impaired community that it's, yeah. it's just crazy. How like yeah. sent light years ahead of time with, with that one little device. And, and you know what, it, having the accessible technology and, and technology that is made for everybody to be able to use, which is the dream for all pieces um, it really, it, it gives the access. That's the issue. Like I always say that blindness is not a problem. Blindness isn't the problem. It's the lack of access to literacy, to independence, to all those things. That's the problem. And when technology can eliminate and that barrier and give the access, blindness becomes a non-issue, you know? Yeah, it does. And it also happens that, that that can happen in sports too. Did you get your boys playing sports, didn't you? Oh my goodness. The fact that I that my first question to the doctor was will he play <laughs> baseball? And then both of my boys were on the regular little league teams in our town and won championships being full contributors to their team is is a true testament to, you know, the will of, of a child that wants to figure something out and the support and access that a community gives that child. Um, it's, it's, it's a true, I mean, it's such a testament to it that, that it's, um, in the works for being a movie, Michael's first baseball season, or his, he was the first one to win the championship and then Mitchell three years later, because it is, it was right in front of my eyes. It unfolded for a baseball season of how somebody can go from a, a whole team can go from, this is impossible. No one's ever done something like this before to where we landed. You know, we didn't, <laughs> we were, Michael's team was such the bad news bears. They were so horrible. And with teamwork and a few other things that were built in, they actually, because of one little rule that we found out that even though they lost every game, they had one last chance to play into the playoffs and they got in the playoffs and then they started winning and winning. And a lot of it, I believe, had to do with the fact that they were just so grateful. These boys were so grateful they had an opportunity to be in the playoffs that they really rallied around each other and found all of their strengths and started winning. And then we land in the, <laughs> in the championship game, much to the other team, the undefeated team chagrin and, and go extra innings and beat them for to win the championship was just unbelievable. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible story. Oh my gosh, and just watching all the all the characters along the way and how Michael changed. You know, he didn't just change a perception or two on his team. He changed the perception of an entire town and from that moment on it was very odd to people, kids in the classroom or or on other courts and fields and stuff, if somebody was going to deny my sons an opportunity, that became like so foreign to everybody that knew them that that, that person was, became the outcast that wanted to deny them an, 
you know, something. Mm -hmm. It was, it was wild how much that changed an entire town. Did you guys ever get involved in any uh, visual impaired sports like goalball or beat baseball oh or, or anything with the USABA? Have you ever worked with them? Oh my gosh. We, my boys have such an obsession with goalball and they are really good at it. Mitchell was actually, um, he went out to, to uh, Team USA headquarters in Colorado Springs two summers ago. It was over his 16th birthday to be with um, elite athletes in, in the United States in his age group to do a bunch of blind sports for, for a week. But the main one that he was out there for was goalball. Oh, my God. That's one of those things that he actually we have goalballs here at our house and we have soccer rebounders that he uses and he will be out on the driveway. It could be 100 degrees. And <laughs> he'll still be flinging that ball against the rebounder. And, you know, they were so good at it and were so um, into it that it was driving me crazy that we had to drive all over the world to, to be in blind sports. There was nothing in our neighborhood. So we brought it to our neighborhood. We brought, we would set up a gym in our elementary school gym with all the tactile lines for a goalball court and invited blind and visually impaired athletes to come and play. And then my favorite, my favorite was that we would have them play against sighted athletes and everybody had to blindfold, you know, and then we had them playing against my daughter, who's a star athlete in the sighted world, you know, her a soccer team walking around, like they're the greatest athletes on the planet at 12 years old, <laughs> the boys and their friends would play against Chris and her friends. It was so funny to watch them have to play a sport now with no vision and to watch them completely motivated to figure it out, the the sighted players figuring mm -hmm. it out, it, it just made for the most fun Saturdays, the the months that we were able to do that. Yeah, but they they love that. I mean, so here's the thing. I'll back up for a second as I get so I, I get, we're a little into sports in my house, but I believe that the key to that baseball, the all of the wins, you know, air quote wins that my boys have had in all of the sports programs that they've been in. One of the big keys to that is that they started very young in blind sports and camp abilities, um, things that are targeted to blind athletes to really teach them the mechanics of sports and using all of their different talents that, that they don't rely on sight, all these other things about spatial awareness and sounds, all of those components, when they're taught that way with people that specialize in that, then you see how they can go out to, quote, regular sports and figure it out a lot easier had we then if we were just to say, OK, we're going to just try baseball and have no idea of the concept of movement without sight and that kind of thing. I think that that was one of the biggest parts of their success. And they did do they did blind sports for a long time. Then they went into regular sports, but they have been at camp abilities every year since. I mean, Michael's now uh, a coach at camp abilities. It was that important to him. And I, I think they both started around six now, where is Camp Abilities? So it's all over the country. Um, it's a little different in, in each of the communities that it's in. But here in Pennsylvania, it's actually at the university where, where I went to school to, be a, to learn how to be a teacher. But they, at ours, Camp Abilities of Pennsylvania, they go for a long weekend over Memorial Day weekend. All these blind athletes come in. They have a one-on-one -on -one coach for that long weekend. And while they, they are learning and competing in a ton of different sports as blind athletes they set goals at the beginning of the week and then for for health for um uh how many sports they're going to learn for social they do all aspects of a healthy lifestyle they set goals and then celebrate achieving those goals at the end of it but on the third day they compete in a triathlon and they compete against themselves in the regular bracket of triathlon times and ages and all that. It's the coolest thing in the world. Hmm. And at the time of this recording, we are uh, about to have the uh, Paralympics start. Is that something that you guys keep track of at your house? Yes. I will say, I say that with a deep breath because we are so frustrated. I'm so, I'm disappointed and frustrated and I need to get more information before I'm, I'm too publicly frustrated, but I don't know if you followed the Becca Myers situation. Yes. yes. 
I just, I mean, I, I love, I love the Olympics. I love, I mean, I am like, my favorite song is the national anthem. Like I'm a little bit of a nerd, you know, and all that. Um, and the Olympics are always a big thing for us. And, and, um, and the, the women's soccer team, you know, I was a soccer player, like all these things. And then when I find out that, you know, here we are fighting and, and winning battles for access and then our elite athletes are denied. And it, and it's, it's not like they're in the cited, you know, regular Olympics and we're there. They just don't know how to accommodate. It's, it's the para Olympic. Like, how is that even possible? Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And for those that are not as familiar with the Becca Meyer story, uh, can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so so Becca is is visually impaired and hearing impaired, and typically has you know uh, uh, in the Paralympics, athletes are able to have a I'm going to forget what the word is. I always say sighted guide because it's the blind have a guide with them. Um, and Becca, had, her mom is trained to be that guide. And Becca, this was going to be her third Olympics that she, I believe her third, right? At, at, um, and they've done this before. This is just how, how it works. I mean, you're going over into an, a different country and have to have to navigate the Olympic village and, and where you're sleeping and getting to, um, you know, for, for her getting to start blocks and, and where you do warm-ups. I mean, it is a lot of navigating for the most independent of athletes. So anyway, long story short, the uh, Paralympic Committee said, no, you can't bring because of, supposedly because of COVID, um, you can't bring that uh, helper. And there was no way that she could safely, not only safely do it, but the mental, I was talking to mentors, blind mentors in my Thriving Blind Academy about this for over an hour when it all happened. And, you know, their thing was, and they are extremely successful, independent adults, blind adults. And their thing was the mental energy that she would have to spend trying to navigate all of that and be successful and get to where she needed to be on time and all of those things because it is such a well-oiled machine there's there's nothing left to to, yeah, to compete, compete at your highest yeah. level yeah you know like that's just beyond unfair yeah that's that was pretty wild and and really disappointing especially in like you said in, in a paralympic settings where <laughs> and it's been done before in her particular case so you know it doesn't it, it's it's tragic because these guys trained for these things for years and for her to have to for her to back out like that is um it's tragic oh my goodness i just hope that you know it's a springboard for we really need to take a new look at some things that are happening that are beyond it's not even unfair it's it's in my opinion a lot of this stuff is criminal like School districts refusing to hire more teachers of the visually impaired. Why would one teacher of the visually impaired have a caseload of 20, 30, 40 Braille readers in a county where they can only see each child once every six weeks for an hour? You know, no, no sighted, no, no sighted community would stand up for that, that their child would only learn how to read once every six weeks for an hour, you know, like, what is that? Yeah, that's not good. So anyway, I don't want to go on that kind of soapbox, but those are the challenges as much as so many things are, you know, with technology and, and awareness and, and all of those things and all the resources that are out there and the, the amount of collaborations that are happening for the blind community now is extraordinary, but then there's still, there's still things like a 70% unemployment rate. And, and what I found out just in in the past six or seven months, you know, when I was really looking into some things, I don't know if you realize this, John, but so there's 70% unemployment rate in the blind community. Of the 30% that are working, I think it's 95% of them are Braille users. However, only 10% of blind American children, uh, students are being taught Braille. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that disconnect is unbelievable. It's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So we have some, we have some, uh, as much as I look back and see everything I've accomplished, 
in the past decade, I think, oh my goodness, but the stuff that we still, the mountains that we still have to move. Um, but I've never been more excited, like literally have never been more excited and energized to move the mountains because I'm watching and and a part of a lot of collaboration that, that I have not seen in a very long time. Yeah, you have been busy the last 10 to 20 <laughs> years. You've been doing a lot of things, especially <laughs> recently. And I want to talk about the, the book too, uh, Thriving Blind. I think you said you kind of studied some successful people and used that in your, your own life to raise to raise the boys and as independently as they could. And then you decided to write a book about it. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know what? I um I I always joke that that uh, I now live back in the town where I grew up. I was gone for quite some time, but I joke that there are English teachers all over my town that need oxygen over the fact that Kristen actually sat down and wrote a book <laughs> instead of just trying to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was always the can I just give a speech on this? Can I record a video? Do I have to really write this thing? But um, I was, if there was ever a thing I never thought I'd say, I being an author, let alone a best-selling author, I, it's uncanny to me. However, you know, I realized that people were asking me all the time, oh my gosh, how are you able to, you know, raise not one, but two boys that are literally thriving? How are you able to do that? How are you able to do that? And, and I was getting a lot of, and I appreciate it and I'm very grateful, but I was getting a lot of congratulations and awards and stuff for being a great mom that, you know, that did these things for her kids. And I thought I actually cannot take the credit. I can take the credit for, for taking what I knew and, and passing it on to my boys, but it was going and finding all of these blind role models. And that's simply how I learn. I mean, I'm just one of those people that needs to say, see somebody do it, ask them how they did it and then do it. You know, I guess that's, it's like a, um, I guess because I went to Montessori school. I don't know. That's how I learned. <laughs> so I, um, that's what I did. And I was a, extremely blessed that at the time all this was happening, I was uh, in a marriage to a, a corporate husband that we had a lot of financial resources that I could take the time to go meet all these people and, and pick their brains and find out from them and, and talk with them and, and ask them questions about things that came up with the boys and then, you know, ta-da, I have these kids that are high achieving and living the lives of their dreams. And then I thought to myself one day, my gosh, who am I to sit on that and not share these people with all the other moms that are sitting on the couch like I was? Like, I felt like I needed to create what I didn't have. And that was was more of a purpose to me than it was like my second purpose in this world be be Michael Mitchell and Chris's mom and also be that mom that other moms needed on diagnosis day to say what in God's name do I do and I say here's what you do you know you open your mind to the possibilities and then go and get all these tools and resources and here they are I just took the shortest you know the shortest line from from point a to point b all the people I knew I I interviewed them transcribed their story and um and put it in a book but i wanted to make sure that it was you know a, one of my editors said you need to clean this up and get the philly out of it and have a better um what was her what was her her expression wasn't like smarter words but it was something like that more eloquent language that's what it was and i said i don't do eloquent language so people are going to think i didn't write it and second of all no mom or dad, or grandma, or adult themselves that just heard blindness and is sitting on the couch sobbing, none of them want eloquent language. They want um, maybe a shot of whiskey, but mm -hmm. they want someone to hold their hand and say, I've been there and I'm going to get you to where I am. Here's your first step. And that's the book. And it was written, it's, it's, well, I was a third grade teacher and it's written kind of in, in that kind of, um, wording. And it really is the resource that I never had. It only goes into my story a little bit because it's really not about me. It's about all the people that made me, me and my boys, them. And I was only able to put, it's, it's 13 people that are in there that I know quite well and their stories quite well. But I tell you, you know, that one resource that I, I just wanted it to be the thing that I didn't have. Then when it went to number one new release on Amazon, then it was a bestseller. And then I was getting messages from all over the world, people that have been impacted by it. 
and it wasn't just moms anymore. I mean, it's literally when you when you read it, it is written for a mom or a dad. It is literally me talking to them sitting on their couch. But teachers are are impacted by it. not even teachers of the blind and visually impaired, not even just them. It's all lots of different teachers that are looking at each student as an individual now and what are their strengths and how they can help. How can they get them thriving? Um, but it's it's and then it evolved into a summit last fall. There's 17 countries, 27 incredible speakers that are are thriving with blindness, and now it's a whole membership program where mentors that are succeeding without sight sit and chat with parents, uh, adults that are losing their vision or lost their vision. I even watched a conversation the other night with um, two of our mentors that were in the Zoom room helping parents unpack some tools and strategies for their blind children. And the one, the one adult said to the other one, hey, I haven't been out in the world in a year. And now I'm back to work and realizing I lost a ton more vision. And he was so down about it. And he said to the other guy, how did you handle that? What can I do? And I watched my friend Charlie walk, walk the guy Clark through steps that he can take to change his mindset, some new tools that he needed. It was, I mean, all of that has come from me deciding to put the 13 people that impacted me the most at that point into a book. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's turned into the, is that the Thriving Blind Academy you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. And when is the summit for that? The summit this year is November 13th. We're again doing the same format. You know, people were saying after that's the first summit last year, which I decided to just do because we were all at home on Zoom anyway, you know, stuck in in lockdowns. People were saying that, that, you know, a lot of times people come to stuff like that because they're they're out seeking the tools and the resources and they go to lots of different conferences and and things like that. Um, but people were saying they had never seen anything like it because I, I guess I never do anything the way anybody else does it, but I just do the things that I know what I needed. I know what I needed 21 years ago. I know what I needed when Michael started middle school. I know what I needed when they were heading off to college. And I build these programs and tools to be that resource. I'm not looking to solve a gajillion problems, but I want to be that that resource that I needed. So my stuff is designed to be lighthearted, extremely um, functional inspiration where you can walk away and say, oh, those are in that 15 minutes, I just learned seven new tools that I didn't know about. And I'm going to go get them right now those kinds of things. And it's, it's always fun. I don't like to do anything <laughs> if, it isn't, if it isn't fun, because I know the devastation that I was in. And now where I'm at and where my boys are at, I mean, I smile all day, every day, and I want everybody else to be able to do the same. And a couple of other things that you're working on is crb1.org. What do you do over there? Yeah, so that um, that's actually the only patient organization in the world. It's a worldwide thing for specifically for CRB1, uh, LCA, and RP. It's the patient organization that we work on. Uh, we fund. I don't say work on. I'm not a scientist. Good lord. We fund research. We have we have research teams all over the world looking at possible options for site. They're looking at what I was mentioning earlier, studies about what is the progression of this disease. Can you imagine that, unfortunately, in this country right now, there are school districts that will deny services like Braille and mobility training unless you have a letter stating and citing research that the disease is degenerative and they need Braille. I mean, that alone makes me just want to... Yeah, that's pretty amazing, especially in, the, in this day and age. Yeah. So so we're doing a study about, you know, what the progression of disease is so that people are fully informed when they receive the diagnosis, what to expect and when to intervene with things like like Braille and certain services. We have a, a registry of all the well, as many patients, you know, as we can find trying to find more and more of them for different studies for research and things like Braille services. You know, I'm able to then go advocate on Capitol Hill for more services for the blind when I'm able to say in our, you know, in our one little organization of a rare eye disease, we have this many Braille readers and that kind of thing. So it really, and then we also connect the families living with CRB1 retinal disease to each other 
in the different parts of the world. Um, we connect on, on online with them that they can learn from all of us in, in all the different parts of the world. And we even have our researchers talk with the families about things that are coming down the pike. Um, so we, we do resources for, for living and thriving with blindness, as well as research for possible options for sight. Okay. And what's going on with uh, brilliantly resilient? Did I say that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. I didn't realize it was such a tongue twister when we, when we put it together. Um, a very, very good friend of mine that I only met a few years ago through a different project we were both involved in. Um, her name is Mary Fran. And when we got to talking, you know, there was a lot of women in the group we were in that are building businesses and have nonprofits and stuff like that. And we got to talking, we were like, there's just something very unique about the two of us that we were kind of drawn together. And then I, I, she heard my story and I heard hers, you know, uh, I of course didn't plan on having two blind children. And she woke up on mother's day, uh, to find out that not only was her son a heroin addict, he was, he was dying in the hospital of an overdose and got him through that. Um, thank God. And he's now a extremely successful man with a gorgeous family, um, three wonderful kids, but quite the success story. But all the, you know, both of us having had such successes out of uh, the beginnings of journeys that started so opposite of what they look like now came together to say, because Mary Fran is the same as me. We need to be the resource that people did, do not have that we needed all those years ago. Uh, we need to create that for other people. So it was supposed to be um, a, I always call it the world takeover tour. We were, we were going to be on stages all over the world, sharing our message of not just being resilient, but finding your gifts and talents and using them to impact the world because of the adversity, because of the sucker punch that, that life threw at you and, and go on to bigger and better things. But we had our first event here in the Philly area. It was absolutely extraordinary. And then I think it was literally four days later, the, the world shut down. It was, we were so, we were so under a rock of planning that event and launching this new business that we were like, we got to the, you know, uh, Mary Fran was like, I'll pick up the water. And I'm like, you know, I'll pick up this stuff. And then we're like, is it weird that Costco has no water? Is something happening in this world? You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> So the world shut down. So the so you know to to make a long story short, we decided we now more than ever when everything was in lockdown, we still needed to be that resource. We had to figure out how to get that information to people. So we started it as an online show on Facebook that's now grown to multiple platforms, um, and we've interviewed people like the creator of the game Pictionary, the top selling game in the world. Um, he's now a good friend of ours. We interviewed him to to address all of the business owners that were losing businesses and how do you bounce back and how are you resilient in business? Um, uh, the founder of, of Fem City, a women's business group that is absolutely extraordinary all over the country. Um, you know, again, how, I mean, she's had sucker punches all through her life, but the people we've interviewed have been I still can't believe some of the people that we've been able to talk with and learn from. And it actually doing that show got me through the lockdowns for those six months and, and things going off the rails and, and um, you know, a college kid that had to come home and was having a very hard time with it. Um, you know, so now we've been able to take the things that we've learned to go from surviving to thriving and put it on a, on a grander scale that people from any walk of life, any, any medical diagnosis, or we call it sucker punches that life throws, can use this, this, these steps of what we did to come out of it. We say brilliant, not broken. You're a very uh, busy woman, Kristen, and you're doing a lot of stuff and you've done a lot of stuff. And I am very appreciative of you uh, stopping by to talk to us here for just a little bit. Where's the best place for someone to find you and what you do. You can find everything I do at kristensmedley.com and it's Kristen with an I-N, kristensmedley.com. You can also easily um, go to thrivingblind.com and it'll point you um, to my website and, and all the things I do. And I would, I would um, very much advise all of your listeners to tune into the Brilliantly Resilient podcast 
every week because the stories of of resilience and uncovering brilliance are literally life-changing every single week. It's phenomenal. I'm I'm a very very lucky and blessed girl to um to have have found my way through living a, a brilliantly resilient life and having the the gifts and the tribe as we call it the friends um along the way cheering me on and and helping <laughs> i'm one of those people that people say how can i help you i'm like you better mean that because i'm gonna <laughs> give you a job <laughs> it takes a village sometimes and uh um, yes. that's what the community is for and, and thanks so much for for what you do in the world, John, and informing the community, empowering everybody. I mean, you're right. It takes a village and and we're blessed to be a part of this community together. Yeah. And let's just keep talking about it. We'll figure it all out sometime. Thanks, Kristen. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.